I'd like to talk about the cereals collection here in the Auckland Central Library basement. So cereals, like magazines, journal collection, the hard copy. There were over 10,000 titles in the basement dating back to the 19th century. A group of us, we started in 2019 and we looked at every single one to decide to keep it or dispose of it. By dispose, we put it on a list for other libraries around the country. And it was a hard slog. Like, you get decision fatigue. We started doing it in two-hour blocks and realised we just couldn't do it because after an hour and a half, you're just like, I don't care if we keep this or not anymore. I'm, I'm exhausted, you know what I mean? It's like, um, what do you think? So we then brought it down to an hour at a time. We'd look at these things. It seems like a hard decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why it was shared. I made sure I was there for the interesting numbers near the end of the Dewey sequence, which included the sports. So I've looked at all the sports ones. And this is how, literally, we were just going through the stacks that came across this magazine called um, The New Zealand Sportsman. Kia ora, I'm Sue Berman. And I'm Benjamin Brooking. And in this episode, we head down to check out some magazines in the stack at Auckland Central Library. The stack is a library term used for items held in the basement rather than on the open shelf. It's here that we find the collection of old sporting magazines. And this story is about sports in New Zealand and how it was being written about by journalists in the mid-20th century. We learn about the sports that were being played at the time, how they were viewed, and also the culture that was establishing itself around men's and women's sports participation. Kia ora koutou, ko Andrew Henry Aho. I'm the um, Aotearoa New Zealand Collections Librarian and the Heritage Team here at the Central City Library in Tamaki Makaurau. Introduce me to New Zealand Sportsman. Um, New Zealand Sportsman was a monthly magazine published from 1946 to 1960. There's some really interesting stuff. This is um, September 1948 issue. This is my favourite thing I've seen in here. Some are writing under the sort of nom de plume of old-timer has written an entire page article about pie-heating and beer-drinking competition on the West Coast. What Andrew's showing us is a magazine that would best be described as full scap in size. So a bit bigger than A4, it's slightly higher grade of paper than a newspaper, but not a glossy magazine as you'd find today. Black and white print throughout, but with a red-banded colour title, The New Zealand Sportsman. The Pie Story is a full-page article and features a cartoon by Neville Lodge. The sporting cartoon depicts a beer-bellied, pint-drinking, pie-eating chap with his pound note on the bar and two disbelieving onlookers. Can you read us a little bit? He looked like wilting when the tenth pie disappeared, followed by a foaming tankard of the best. The turly pies were not small by any means and the coast schooners gave an extra measure of liquids. George began to bulge and buck as he tackled the last of the dozen pies. Well, the last schooner stood beside him. Excitement ran high, but George got the sight of the quid also lying on the table. That's what he was playing for, of course. With a superhuman effort, pushed the last of the crust in his throat, washed it down with the sparkling tonic, grabbed his pound, note, and rushed out the back to quickly disgorge the contents of his stomach. He was a sick man, but became a hero with the lads. Oh, it's not like we don't still do that today. Well, no, I think they're taking the mickey as well, because this is published in 1948, but this is saying... 1877 this happened. So you mean they're drawing on some historical content themselves? Perfect. I mean, and it's well written. It's very descriptive. I mean, you can... It's it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, So yeah, there's obviously fun stuff like this. One thing that stood out to me is that the ads are exactly the same ads that I hear when I listen to sports podcasts in 2022 around um, virility and hair, male hair tonics and bodybuilding systems, exercise... 
80, 90 years later. The photography is really striking. Um, they're wonderful, like full page. Yeah, I mean, this one's of the Surf Lifesavers at Picard is amazing on the cover of this March 1948. It's two men on one board, I think. And the title of the photo is Surf Shooters. There's a caption here. Um, the double surf ski. Flying through the pounding Piha surf on a 16-foot double surf ski at Don Wright and Ken Hall of the Piha Club. What else is in it? There's some, yeah, all the double all blacks. Sorry, I'm not actually sure what double what a double all black is. Oh, really? It's someone who's uh, played two sports for New Zealand. So they're, they're sort of fating them, saying, what an amazing, you know, to represent your country not once but twice in all two different sports. So there's like profiles around that. Here we go, brilliant Charlie Oliver's number three. Generally recognised as the greatest centre three quarters this country has produced. So yeah, the breadth is really impressive. Um, it's not just rugby racing and beer. And there's also tours and, you know, there's profiles with the players and interviews and stuff like that. A whole bunch of um, how-to. It goes everything from wrestling moves to golf swings to how to shoot a basketball to one was how to throw knives at one's wife. I think in a gag sort of a way, the magician's apprentice type thing, but um, that was sort of certainly eye-opening. The other sorry, contextual thing that makes it interesting is that the post-war, World War II. So in some, some ways it makes that possible. There's this great quote in one of the magazines saying, um, distance across the Tasman's gone from three and a half days to six hours. So that makes all these tours possible, which gives them content to report on. The Kiwis rugby league team went to England and France in 47-48. Um, New Zealand cricket tour of England in 1949 is widely regarded as you know one of the strongest teams that we ever sent abroad. And then due to South African apartheid, uh, when the All Blacks toured there in 1949, they asked the New Zealand Rugby Union not to select any players of colour or Māori players. There was an African-American, actually, player who played for Wairarapa, I think, who was um, also excluded, but predominantly Māori, of course. And the New Zealand Rugby Union agreed to that um, demand and sent a team just with Pākehā players. And we lost every single game. And Fred Allen, the captain, said if the NZRU hadn't bowed to pressure and they'd selected Māori players, they wouldn't have lost 4-0. That would be interesting to look into what they're saying in here produced a huge amount of content because if the All Blacks lose, people have got opinions on it. This is Woman in Sport, subtitled the magazine for every sportswoman from March 1948. Nice two colour print for the yeah, and it's got, title look, page. This is Northern Wairoa women's hockey team on attack in 1948, full colour photo, in really good condition here. Same, same publishers, same group. Um, different editors, there's a female editor for this. Actually kind of a legend of New Zealand sports writing. Dorothy Dot Simons. So like the dot bit, do you mean like as in? That's her name, Dorothy Dot. D-O-T. Yeah, short for Dorothy. Okay, okay got, it, got it. Who was made OBE for services to sport and youth in 1974. Woman in sport then becomes New Zealand sportswoman. So you, we can kind of think of these as the same publication. The sports basically covered the same way as its sibling publication. There's a lot of women's sport happening. They're reporting on games and matches that were being played in all these different sports, from riding to track and field to hockey to softball to archery to golf to cricket to bowls. I saw, um, I saw dancing mentioned. Yeah. That was interesting. Um, dance. You might have wrestling in a men's magazine. You can yeah, have dancing true. in the women's. True, true, true. Mm. 
what's interesting is looking at the ads compared to the men's work. Like, be independent, learn to drive yourself, the Leighton Driving School. Um, the big ad here, Auckland Hospital Board looking for junior courses for ward maids, housemaids, waitresses and kitchen assistants. And that's a constant throughout these two magazines. Local factories like Cambridge, Corma, Silknit, advertising looking for um, looking for staff. And this ad for Cambridge Clothing Company, this is December 1948. If you want a good job in a place where everyone may enjoy freely their interest in sport and social activities. Like, so freely be able to enjoy it. So the New Zealand sportsman ran from 1946 to 1960. And the New Zealand sportswoman slash woman in sport, it's sibling publication, ran through uh, 1948 and 49, just two years. In the UK, like it's if you sort of go through the documentary here, it just looks like women didn't start becoming involved in sport until the 1970s, until second wave feminism, but just the existence of this Women's Sport Monthly is really interesting. Because the pushback after the war, like the sort of 1950s nuclear family housewife stuff, is it threatening that there's women working and playing sport? And they're playing sport for their company teams. And there's like a purposeful erasure. Basically, um, fragile masculinity co-opting sports for its own own ends. Which, I don't know, it's a pretty intense topic. Probably not for me to talk about, but I think it can be evidence through these. Women in sports and gender inequality across sporting codes over the 19th and 20th century feature in pages of Tiara. New Zealand's online encyclopedia. Writer Sally Shaw notes that sport is rife with gendered assumptions, including assumptions about the sports women and men can and should play. In the 19th century, women often faced opposition to their participation in sport, with complaints about women's inability to perform strenuous athletic feats. In the 21st century, more women play sport, but women's sport still mostly receives less media coverage and less funding than men's sport. Women could play masculine sports, Sports like rugby, soccer, and cricket. These sports tended to spark more criticism and resentment from the public. Many men saw women as invading their spaces. As this concerned gentleman wrote into the New Zealand sportswoman, they run, they swim, they ride, they play cricket, golf, and even football. They box and they wrestle. As it would appear, the post-World War II sentiment that women needed to retreat to their societal positions they had occupied prior to the war had seeped into the realm of sports. Katia Kennedy was an Auckland Library Heritage Trust John Stackpole Scholar in the summer of 2022. For her research topic, Katia investigated the attitudes surrounding women in sport from the turn of the 20th century and the development and growth particularly of women's cricket and women's marching in Auckland during this time. Has there been much sexism in sport in New Zealand? Uh, yeah, there's been quite a bit. <laughs> and even now it's kind of... You can kind of see, looking back at the sources from like 50 years ago, that it's progressed, but not entirely as far as you would have liked or thought it would. What do you like researching about sports? Um, well, I play cricket, so that was a little bit of a personal interest of mine, looking into women's cricket. I didn't know there was such a wealth of history of women's sports in Auckland and in New Zealand in general, which is kind of bizarre to find out, actually. Um, I started looking at women's cricket in general because I actually didn't know anything about how it started. And it turned out the first Auckland's domestic team was formed in 1935, which was way earlier than I thought it was. And then they had been women had been playing cricket in Auckland for about 100 years before that, unofficially mostly. 
What was that 1935 team like? Um, it was an Auckland team that they'd put together for a test series or a series against a visiting English team. So every major New Zealand city at that time had a team that they put together to play in England. And then they found uh, the best players from those teams to make a New Zealand team. Do you know how the series went? Um, I don't think they did very well. <laughs> Humble beginnings. So that was where I sort of started and then wanted to find more sports and then came across marching. It was the big one. Can you introduce us to um, competitive marching? I think a lot of people probably wouldn't actually know what it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was basically founded in New Zealand, started in New Zealand. Sorry, when you say founded in New Zealand. It started, started in New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah. Like the the version that is like now around the world. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> it is. How, how, how did it start here? Do you know? Oh, it was returning drill sergeants from one of the world wars. I can't remember which one but wanted something to do, I guess, and founded marching. So had really close connections to military recruitment and stuff the whole whole way through. Um, and then it's evolved into cheerleading and aerobics sort of, that sort of competitive branch of sports now. The marching tradition, <laughs> which was seems to be singularly a woman's sport, did it get a different level of attention, do you think, because it wasn't competing with with a men's sport? Uh, yeah, I think it was quite it was quite a community-based activity as well, which I think was part of the reason. And it was mainly aimed towards middle class because it was it didn't necessarily get funding, but it was got lots of sponsorships from the community because I guess it was acceptable for women to participate in. Yeah, it was very, very pedantic with the rules, what they could wear and what they couldn't. I know there was, at like some point, Auckland had like 30 teams competing. Probably more, actually. Just every suburb had like one or two teams. So I think New Zealand was quite into it. They really liked it. It was all across New Zealand. And then across the world, I think Australia and Canada had big um, competitions where they traveled to as well. But then I think it was mostly in America in the 70s. Or at least that one author in the New York Times was a little bit critical about how cult-like it was, hidden fascism or something. There are a couple other authors, I'm not sure if they're from New Zealand as well, but they also criticised how it looked. But no one, no one seemed to criticise how it was mainly young girls playing and how they were judged mostly on aesthetics. What do you think about competitive marching? I think it was weird. <laughs> I think it, I don't think it would last very long today. I think it's quite like with the critiques that come on with competitive cheerleading like i think it would kind of fall down that same sort of ableist type sexist sort of route what do you think people should understand about the journey that women's sport has been on for the past 200 years i think it was mostly after the first world war when there was a bigger push for women to join sports by women um to join organized sports because they would play socially but uh, following the First World War, they wanted to have more agency in the sports they played. So I think that was that was the turning point when lots of more women's sports started to appear in Auckland. And uh, it wasn't smooth sailing from there, was it? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> it was pretty pretty good if you wanted to play a sport like hockey was promoted for women. Even basketball was okay to play because it was 
for men's and women's sport. But it was fine because it was a non-contact sport, so they could both play without, like we could both play together without theoretically hurting each other or something. Um, but then other sports, it didn't stop women from playing them. They just received less funding or support. Why do you think that is? I think the main reason was that it was more socially acceptable to play sports like hockey or tennis and then competitive marching because it wasn't really seen as a sport, like a strenuous activity sport. So women were less frowned upon for playing something where they weren't sweating as much yeah, or running around. I saw that, I, I heard that quote of the um, danger of sports where you might strain something. Oh yeah, which included competitive walking. <laughs> <laughs> it really depends what sport it was, how they developed. Because what I found was women's sports that were in like a traditionally men's sphere had a much harder development. So sports like rugby and cricket compared to sports like hockey and netball. So it's been mostly men doing the sports journalism about women's sports um, and mostly been recording like game stats, that sort of thing, but also how women appear when they're playing the sports, especially in earlier years of sports being played. There's been commentary about how, either how poorly they play compared to men or how they look bad when they're playing, or they look too sweaty or something, or they don't look good running. I don't know, I just kind of assumed that if you're writing about women's sport, you'd be aiming to write to the women who were playing or the women who would watch women playing, but it was mostly aimed at men who were either complaining about it or watching because they were attracted to the women playing. Men felt that they owed it to them to look good while they were playing in that sport, that they were taking up space in this their area. I think it's changed a little bit as in it's kind of become a little less noticeable but I don't think that sentiment's still there. There was one minutes from a meeting from 1880s where a man was writing about how there were the majority of members of a tennis club were mainly women and then he said it's going to be a matter of time before men start joining the club because they're attracted to the women's flittering undergarments or something and then about 80 to 100 years later there was another article published in the Auckland Star where a male commentator was saying that he was grateful or thankful or something about the women's tennis uniforms gradually becoming shorter and shorter. It's pretty much exactly the same quote, just 80 odd years later. Are these actually quite rare, these magazines? The New Zealand Sportsman's in six New Zealand libraries. And these, the, the sibling publication, the New Zealand Sports Woman and Woman in Sport, are even more rare. This Woman in Sports in two libraries, New Zealand Sports Woman's in three in the country, and thus the world. So I think these were a donation. I don't think the library was collecting these contemporaneously as they were being published. So sports fans couldn't come in here to the library and, and read these, I don't think, in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, popular stuff, they weren't ca- that keen on. Well, the woman in Sport New Zealand Sportswoman were both bound. This is in library binding, so all the issues are bound together. This has got a, a date on the inside of the binding, 22nd of April 1992. I think our predecessors realised how rare these were, and thus they bound them for protection. The New Zealand Sportswoman, which was a much bigger run, has no stamps or stickers. Like, when something comes into the library, to keep it here and to let people know that it's a library thing, we'll, we'll process it, is what we call it. 
I believe these were related donations because there's no stamps or anything like that and they would just be in, in pieces. They'd be so tatty if they had been out on the open shelves or what have you. And, you know, I, and I'm a librarian and I like sports and I didn't know about them until I was on a project going through every single magazine in the in the library. So there's so many so many things down there. Like I said, 6,304 titles still. Not all of them are as rich or as relevant or as contemporary interesting to contemporize as these are I don't think but there's a lot of potential and the, the real legacy of this this magazine is um, you know the New Zealand Sportsman they started the New Zealand Sportsman Awards and then yeah when this stopped being published in 1960 that fell over until Murray Holberg started it again in 1963 and it became the live televised gala event we know today like it was, it was called the New Zealand Sportsman of the Year Awards but Yvette Williams won two of the first four times it was awarded and I think three of the first ten were awarded to women. There weren't gender-specific awards from 1987. So that's quite a long time, right? As in a sportsman was a man or a woman. Yeah. If you have any sort of, I don't know, any hopes or aspirations or angst or things that you would like to see change? Oh, if sports in general became more accessible to women. Like, I'm biased, but particularly cricket. Women in cricket only got started getting paid like 10 years ago. There's quite a few women I know that watch cricket, but they wouldn't play it. I think it's the intimidation aspect of going into not just a long game, but also a game that uh, boys play. I guess if you haven't started playing it when you were young, you'd have no clue how to get into it. Yeah, which is why that development stuff is so important when they're young. I know they have started promoting it a bit more at primary schools. But then when I was at primary school, I wasn't allowed to join the team because it was just a boys' team, so. Women's cricket has made great leaps and bounds within the last decade. In 2014, the top 10 women cricketers in New Zealand were awarded annual contracts for the first time. And last year, almost a decade later, the entry fees to women's and men's matches were changed to the same price, both international and domestic games. Women's rugby made history last year by winning the Women's Rugby World Cup, and they did so in a sold-out Eden Park stadium. You can find a list of references for this episode in the published notes. Get in touch with us by emailing libraryresearch at aucklandcouncil.govt.nz and we'll make sure you can find the collections of your interest. Thanks to Andrew Henry and Katia Kennedy for sharing your research and insights into sporting history. This series is made with Auckland Library's content creation funding and is part of a wider series of short films now called The Collections Talk, available to view online. This episode was written and produced by me, Sue Berman. It was recorded and produced by me, Benjamin Brooking. And edited and engineered by me, Juliana Machado. This has been Nakal the Collections Podcast, sports writing in the mid-20th century. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear the rest of this series and more from Auckland Libraries.